This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Kirsten Ferreri. Vindication of the Rights of Women by Mary Wollstonecraft. Chapter 5, Part 1. Animadversions on some of the writers who have rendered women objects of pity, bordering on contempt. The opinions speciously supported in some modern publications on the female character and education, which have given the tone to most of the observations made in a more cursory manner on the sex, remain now to be examined. Section 5.1 I shall begin with Rousseau and give a sketch of the character of women in his own words, interspersing comments and reflections. My comments, it is true, will all spring from a few simple principles, and might have been deduced from what I have already said, but the artificial structure has been raised with so much ingenuity that it seems necessary to attack it in a more circumstantial manner, and make the application myself. Sophia, says Rousseau, should be as perfect a woman as Emilius is a man, and to render her so, it is necessary to examine the character which nature has given to the sex. He then proceeds to prove that women ought to be weak and passive, because she has less bodily strength than man, and from hence infers that she was formed to please, and to be subject to him, and that it is her duty to render herself agreeable to her master, this being the grand end of her existence. Supposing woman to have been formed only to please, and be subject to man, the conclusion is just. She ought to sacrifice every other consideration to render herself agreeable to him, and let this brutal desire of self-preservation be the grand spring of all her actions, when it is proved to be the iron bed of fate, to fit which her character should be stretched or contracted, regardless of all moral or physical distinctions. But if, as I think may be demonstrated, the purposes of even this life, viewing the whole, are subverted by practical rules built upon this ignoble base, I may be allowed to doubt whether woman was created for man. And though the cry of irreligion, or even atheism, be raised against me, I will simply declare that were an angel from heaven to tell me that Moses's beautiful, poetical cosmogony, and the account of the fall of man, were literally true— I could not believe what my reason told me was derogatory to the character of the Supreme Being, and having no fear of the devil before mine eyes, I venture to call this a suggestion of reason, instead of resting my weakness on the broad shoulders of the first seducer of my frail sex. It being once demonstrated, continues Rousseau, that man and woman are not, nor ought to be constituted alike in temperament and character, it follows, of course, that they should not be educated in the same manner. In pursuing the directions of nature, they ought indeed to act in concert, but they should not be engaged in the same employments. The end of their pursuits should be the same, but the means they should take to accomplish them, and of consequence their tastes and inclinations, should be different. Rousseau's Emilius, Volume 3, page 176. Girls are, from their earliest infancy, fond of dress. Not content with being pretty, they are desirous of being thought so. 
we see by all their little airs that this thought engages their attention and they are hardly capable of understanding what is said to them before they are to be governed by talking to them of what people will think of their behaviour the same motive, however, indiscreetly made use of with boys, has not the same effect. Provided they are let to pursue their amusements at pleasure, they care very little what people think of them. Time and pains are necessary to subject boys to this motive. Whencesoever girls derive this first lesson, it is a very good one. As the body is born, in a manner before the soul, our first concern should be to cultivate the former. This order is common to both sexes but the object of that cultivation is different. In the one sex, it is the development of corporeal powers, in the other, that of personal charms. Not that either the quality of strength or beauty ought to be confined exclusively to one sex, but only that the order of the cultivation of both is in that respect reversed. Women certainly require as much strength as to enable them to move and act gracefully, and men as much address as to qualify them to act with ease. Children of both sexes have a great many amusements in common, and so they ought. Have they not also many such when they are grown up? Each sex also has its peculiar taste to distinguish in this particular. Boys love sports of noise and activity, to beat the drum, to whip the top, and to drag about their little carts. Girls, on the other hand, are fonder of things of show and ornament, such as mirrors, trinkets, and dolls. The doll is the peculiar amusement of the females from whence we see their taste plainly adapted to their destination. The physical part of the art of pleasing lies in dress, and this is all which children are capacitated to cultivate of that art. Here, then, we see a primary propensity firmly established, which you need only to pursue and regulate. The little creature will doubtless be very desirous to know how to dress up her doll, to make its sleeve knots, its flounces, its headdress, etc., she is obliged to have so much recourse to the people about her, for their assistance in these articles, that it would be much more agreeable to her to owe them all to her own industry. Hence we have a good reason for these first lessons which are usually taught these young females, in which we do not appear to be setting them a task, but obliging them, by instructing them in what is immediately useful to themselves. And, in fact, almost all of them learn with reluctance to read and write, but very readily apply themselves to the use of their needles. They imagine themselves already grown up, and think with pleasure that such qualifications will enable them to decorate themselves. End quote. This is certainly only an education of the body. But Rousseau is not the only man who has indirectly said that merely the person of a young woman, without any mind, unless animal spirits come under that description, is very pleasing. To render it weak, and what some may call beautiful, the understanding is neglected, and girls forced to sit still, play with dolls, and listen to foolish conversations. The effect of habit is insisted upon as an undoubted indication of nature. I know it was Rousseau's opinion that the first years of youth should be employed to form the body, though in educating Amelius he deviates from this plan. Yet the difference between strengthening the body, on which strength of mind in a very great measure depends, and only giving it an easy motion, is very wide. Rousseau's observations, it is proper to remark, were made in a country where the art of pleasing was refined only to extract the grossness of vice. He did not go back to nature or his ruling appetite disturbed the operations of reason, else he would not have drawn these crude inferences. 
In France, boys and girls, particularly the latter, are only educated to please, to manage their persons, and regulate their exterior behaviour. And their minds are corrupted at a very early age by the worldly and pious cautions they receive to guard them against immodesty. I speak of pastimes, the very confessions which mere children are obliged to make, and the questions asked by the holy men I assert these facts on good authority were sufficient to impress a sexual character, and the education of society was a school of coquetry and art. At the age of ten or eleven, nay, often much sooner, girls began to coquette, and talked, unreproved, of establishing themselves in the world by marriage. In short, they were made women, almost from their very birth, and compliments were listened to instead of instruction. These, weakening the mind, nature was supposed to have acted like a stepmother when she formed this afterthought of creation. Not allowing them understanding, however, it was but consistent to subject them to authority, independent of reason, and to prepare them for this subjection. He gives the following advice, quote, "'Girls ought to be active and diligent. Nor is that all. They should also be early subjected to restraint. This misfortune, if it really be one, is inseparable from their sex, nor do they ever throw it off but to suffer more cruel evils.' They must be subject all their lives to the most constant and severe restraint, which is that of decorum. It is therefore necessary to accustom them early to such confinement, that it may not afterward cost them too dear, and to the suppression of their caprices, that they may the more readily submit to the will of others. If, indeed, they are fond of being always at work, they should be sometimes compelled to lay it aside. Dissipation, levity, and inconstancy are faults that readily spring up from their first propensities, when corrupted or perverted by too much indulgence. To prevent this abuse, we should learn them, above all things, to lay a due restraint on themselves. The life of a modest woman is reduced, by our absurd institutions, to a perpetual conflict within herself. Not but it is just that this sex should partake of the sufferings which arise from those evils it has caused us. End quote. And why is the life of a modest woman a perpetual conflict? I should answer that this very system of education makes it so. Modesty, temperance, and self-denial are the sober offspring of reason, but when sensibility is nurtured at the expense of understanding, such weak beings must be restrained by arbitrary means, and be subjected to continual conflicts but give their activity of mind wider range, and nobler passions and motives will govern their appetites and sentiments. Quote, the common attachment and regard of a mother, nay, mere habit, will make her beloved by her children if she does nothing to incur their hate. Even the restraint she lays them under, if well directed, will increase their affection instead of lessening it, because a state of dependence being natural to the sex, they perceive themselves formed for obedience. End quote. This is begging the question. For servitude not only debases the individual, but its effects seem to be transmitted to posterity. Considering the length of time that women have been dependent, is it surprising that some of them hug their chains and fawn like the spaniel? These dogs, observes a naturalist, at first kept their ears erect, but custom has superseded nature, and a token of fear is become a beauty. Quote, for the same reason, adds Rousseau, women have or ought to have but little liberty. They are apt to indulge themselves excessively in what is allowed them. 
Addicted in everything to extremes, they are even more transported at their divergence than boys. The answer to this is very simple. Slaves and mobs have always indulged themselves in the same excesses when once they broke loose from authority. The bent bow recoils with violence when the hand is suddenly relaxed that forcibly held it, and sensibility, the plaything of outward circumstances, must be subjected to authority, or moderated by reason. There results, he continues, from this habitual restraint, a tractableness which the women have occasion for during their whole lives, as they constantly remain either under subjection to the men, or to the opinions of mankind, and are never permitted to set themselves above these opinions. The first, and most important qualification in a woman, is good-nature, or sweetness of temper, formed to obey a being so imperfect as man, often full of vices, and always full of faults. She ought to learn betimes even to suffer injustice, and to bear the insults of a husband without complaint. It is not for his sake, but her own, that she should be of a mild disposition. The perverseness and ill-nature of the women only serve to aggravate their own misfortunes, and the misconduct of their husbands. They might plainly perceive that such are not the arms by which they gain the superiority." formed to live with such an imperfect being as man. They ought to learn from the exercise of their faculties the necessity of forbearance. But all the sacred rights of humanity are violated by insisting on blind obedience, or the most sacred rights belong only to man. The being who patiently endures injustice, and silently bears insults, will soon become unjust, or unable to discern right from wrong. Besides, I deny the fact, this is not the true way to form or meliorate the temper. For as a sex, men have better tempers than women, because they are occupied by pursuits that interest the head as well as the heart, and the steadiness of the head gives a healthy temperature to the heart. People of sensibility have seldom good tempers. The formation of the temper is the cool work of reason, when, as life advances, she mixes with happy art jarring elements. I never knew a weak or ignorant person who had a good temper, though that constitutional good-humour, and that docility which fear stamps on the behaviour, often obtains the name. I say behaviour, for genuine meekness never reached the heart or mind, unless as the effect of reflection, and that simple restraint produces a number of peccant humours in domestic life many sensible men will allow, who find some of these gentle, irritable creatures very troublesome companions. Each sex, he further argues, should preserve its peculiar tone and manner. A meek husband may make a wife impertinent, but mildness of disposition on the woman's side will always bring a man back to reason, at least if he be not absolutely a brute, and will sooner or later triumph over him. True, the mildness of reason. But abject fear always inspires contempt, and tears are only eloquent when they flow down fair cheeks. Of what materials can that heart be composed which can melt when insulted, and instead of revolting at injustice, kiss the rod? Is it unfair to infer that her virtue is built on narrow views and selfishness, who can caress a man with true feminine softness the very moment when he treats her tyrannically? Nature never dictated such insincerity, and though prudence of this sort be termed a virtue, 
morality becomes vague when any part is supposed to rest on falsehood. These are mere expedients, and expedients are only useful for the moment. Let the husband beware of trusting too implicitly to this servile obedience, for if his wife can with winning sweetness caress him when angry, and when she ought to be angry, unless contempt had stifled a natural effervescence, she may do the same after parting with a lover. These are all preparations for adultery. Or should the fear of the world or of hell restrain her desire of pleasing other men, when she can no longer please her husband, what substitute can be found by a being who was only formed by nature and art to please man? What can make her amends for this privation? Or where is she to seek for a fresh employment? Where find sufficient strength of mind to determine to begin the search, when her habits are fixed, and vanity has long ruled her chaotic mind? But this partial moralist recommends cunning systematically and plausibly. Quote, Daughters should always be submissive. Their mothers, however, should not be inexorable. To make a young person tractable, she ought not to be made unhappy. To make her modest, she ought not to be rendered stupid. On the contrary, I should not be displeased at her being permitted to use some art, not to elude punishment in case of disobedience, but to exempt herself from the necessity of obeying. It is not necessary to make her dependence burdensome, but only to let her feel it. Subtlety is a talent natural to the sex, and as I am persuaded, all our natural inclinations are right and good in themselves. I am of the opinion that this should be cultivated as well as the others. It is requisite for us only to prevent its abuse." Whatever is, is right, he then proceeds triumphantly to infer. Granted, yet perhaps no aphorism ever contained a more paradoxical assertion. It is a solemn truth with respect to God. He, reverentially, I speak, sees the whole at once, and saw its just proportions in the womb of time. But man, who can only inspect disjointed parts, finds many things wrong, and it is a part of the system, and therefore right, that he should endeavour to alter what appears to him to be so, even while he bows to the wisdom of his Creator, and respects the darkness which he labours to disperse. The inference that follows is just, supposing the principle to be sound. The superiority of address, peculiar to the female sex, is a very equitable indemnification for their inferiority in point of strength. Without this, women would not be the companion of man, but his slave. It is by her superior art and ingenuity that she preserves her equality, and governs him while she affects to obey. Woman has everything against her as well our faults as her timidity and weakness, she has nothing in her favour but her subtlety and her beauty. Is it not very reasonable, therefore, she should cultivate both? Greatness of mind can never dwell with cunning or address, for I shall not boggle about words when their direct signification is insincerity and falsehood, but content myself with observing that if any class of mankind be so created, that it must necessarily be educated by rules, not strictly deducible from truth, virtue is an affair of convention. How could Rousseau dare to assert, after giving this advice, 
that in the grand end of existence the object of both sexes should be the same, when he well knew that the mind formed by its pursuits is expanded by great views swallowing up little ones, or that it becomes itself little. Men have superior strength of body, but were it not for mistaken notions of beauty, women would acquire sufficient to enable them to earn their own subsistence, the true definition of independence, and to bear those bodily inconveniences and exertions that are requisite to strengthen the mind. Let us, then, by being allowed to take the same exercise as boys, not only during infancy but youth, arrive at perfection of body, that we may know how far the natural superiority of man extends. For what reason or virtue can be expected from a creature when the seed-time of life is neglected? None. Did not the winds of heaven casually scatter many useful seeds in the fallow ground? Quote, Beauty cannot be acquired by dress, and coquetry is an art not so early and speedily attained. While girls are yet young, however, they are in a capacity to study agreeable gesture, a pleasing modulation of voice, an easy carriage and behavior, as well as to take the advantage of gracefully adapting their looks and attitudes to time, place, and occasion. Their application, therefore, should not be solely confined to the arts of industry and the needle, when they come to display other talents, whose utility is already apparent. For my part, I would have a young Englishwoman cultivate her agreeable talents, in order to please her future husband, with as much care and assiduity as a young Circassian cultivates hers, to fit her for the harem of an eastern Bashaw. End quote. To render women completely insignificant, he adds, quote, The tongues of women are very voluble. They speak earlier, more readily, and more agreeably than the men. They are accused of also speaking much more. But so it ought to be, and I should be very ready to convert this reproach into a compliment. Their lips and eyes have the same activity, and for the same reason. A man speaks of what he knows, a woman of what pleases her. The one requires knowledge the other taste. The principal object of a man's discourse should be what is useful, that of a woman's what is agreeable. There ought to be nothing in common between their different conversation but truth. We ought not, therefore, to restrain the prattle of girls, in the same manner as we should that of boys, with that severe question, To what purpose are you talking? But by another, which is no less difficult to answer, How will your discourse be received? In infancy, while they are as yet incapable to discern good from evil, they ought to observe it as a law, never to say anything disagreeable to those whom they are speaking to. What will render the practice of this rule also the more difficult, is that it must ever be subordinate to the former, of never speaking falsely or telling an untruth. End quote. To govern the tongue in this manner must require great address indeed, and it is too much practised both by men and women. Out of the abundance of the heart how few speak, so few that I, who love simplicity, would gladly give up politeness for a quarter of the virtue that has been sacrificed to an equivocal quality, which at best should be only the polish of virtue. But to complete the sketch. Quote, 
It is easy to be conceived that if male children are not in a capacity to form any true notions of religion, those ideas must be greatly above the conception of females. It is for this very reason I would begin to speak to them the earlier on this subject, for if we were to wait till they were in a capacity to discuss methodically such profound questions, we should run a risk of never speaking to them on this subject as long as they lived. Reason in women is a practical reason, capacitating them artfully to discover the means of attaining a known end, but which would never enable them to discover that end itself. The social relations of the sexes are indeed truly admirable. From their union there results a moral person, of which women may be termed the eyes, and man the hand, with this dependence on each other, that it is from the man that the woman is to learn what she is to see, and it is of the woman that man is to learn what he ought to do. If woman could recur to the first principles of things as well as man, and man was capacitated to enter into their minutiae as well as women, always independent of each other, they would live in perpetual discord, and their union could not subsist. But in the present harmony, which naturally subsists between them, their different faculties tend to one common end. It is difficult to say which of them conduces the most to it. Each follows the impulse of the other. Each is obedient, and both are masters. As the conduct of a woman is subservient to the public opinion, her faith in matters of religion should for that very reason be subject to authority. Every daughter ought to be of the same religion as her mother, and every wife to be of the same religion as her husband. For though such religion should be false, that docility which induces the mother and daughter to submit to the order of nature takes away, in the sight of God, the criminality of their error. Footnote. What is to be the consequence if the mother's and husband's opinion should chance not to agree? An ignorant person cannot be reasoned out of an error, and when persuaded to give up one prejudice for another, the mind is unsettled. Indeed, the husband may not have any religion to teach her, though in such a situation she will be in great want of a support to her virtue, independent of worldly considerations. The quote continues, As they are not in a capacity to judge for themselves, they ought to abide by the decision of their fathers and husbands as confidently as by that of the church. As authority ought to regulate the religion of the woman, it is not so needful to explain to them the reasons for their belief as to lay down precisely the tenets they are to believe. For the creed which presents only obscure ideas to the mind is the source of fanaticism, and that which presents absurdities leads to infidelity. End quote. Absolute, uncontroverted authority, it seems, must subsist somewhere. But is this not a direct and exclusive appropriation of reason? The rights of humanity have thus been confined to the male line from Adam downwards. Rousseau would carry his male aristocracy still further, for he insinuates that he should not blame those who contend for leaving woman in a state of the most profound ignorance, if it were not necessary, in order to preserve her chastity, and justify the man's choice in the eyes of the world, to give her a little knowledge of men, and the customs produced by human passions. Else she might propagate at home without being rendered less voluptuous and innocent by the exercise of her understanding excepting, indeed, during the first year of her marriage, where she might employ it to dress, like Sophia, quote, 
Her dress is extremely modest in appearance, and yet very coquettish in fact. She does not make a display of her charms. She conceals them. But in concealing them she knows how to affect your imagination. Everyone who sees her will say, There is a modest and discreet girl. But while you are near her, your eyes and affections wander all over her person, so that you cannot withdraw them, and you will conclude that every part of her dress, simple as it seems, was only put in its proper order to be taken to pieces by the imagination. Is this modesty? Is this a preparation for immortality? Again, what opinion are we to form of a system of education when the author says of his heroine that with her doing things well is but a secondary concern, her principal concern is to do them neatly? Secondary, in fact, are all her virtues and qualities. For respecting religion, he makes her parents thus address her accustomed to submission, your husband will instruct you in good time. After thus cramping a woman's mind, if in order to keep it fair he has not made it quite a blank, he advises her to reflect that a reflecting man may not yawn in her company when he is tired of caressing her. What has she to reflect about who must obey? And would it not be a refinement on cruelty only to open her mind to make the darkness and misery of her fate visible? Yet these are his sensible remarks. How consistent with what I have already been obliged to quote, to give a fair view of the subject, the reader may determine. Quote, they who pass their whole lives in working for their daily bread have no ideas beyond their business or their interest, and all their understanding seems to lie in their fingers' ends. This ignorance is neither prejudicial to their integrity nor their morals. It is often of service to them. Sometimes, by means of reflection, we are led to compound with our duty, and we conclude by substituting a jargon of words in the room of things. Our own conscience is the most enlightened philosopher. There is no need of being acquainted with Tully's offices to make a man of probity, and perhaps the most virtuous woman in the world is the least acquainted with the definition of virtue. But it is no less true that an improved understanding only can render society agreeable, and it is a melancholy thing for a father of a family, who is fond of home, to be obliged to be always wrapped up in himself, and to have nobody about him to whom he can impart his sentiments. Besides, how should a woman void of reflection be capable of educating her children? How should she discern what is proper for them? How should she incline them to those virtues she is unacquainted with, or to that merit of which she has no idea? She can only soothe or chide them, render them insolent or timid. She will make them formal coxcombs or ignorant blockheads, but will never make them sensible or amiable. How indeed should she, when her husband is not always at hand to lend her his reason, when they both together make but one moral being, a blind will, eyes without hands, would go a very little way, and perchance his abstract reason, that should concentrate the scattered beams of her practical reason, may be employed in judging the flavour of the wine, discanting on the sauces most proper for turtle, or more profoundly intent at a card-table, he may be generalising his ideas, as he bets away his fortune, leaving all the minutiae of education to his helpmate, or chance. 
but granting that women ought to be beautiful, innocent, and silly, to render her a more alluring and indulgent companion, what is her understanding sacrificed for? And why is all this preparation necessary only, according to Rousseau's own account, to make her the mistress of her husband a very short time? For no man ever insisted more on the transient nature of love. Thus speaks the philosopher, quote, Sensual pleasures are transient. The habitual state of the affections always loses by their gratification. The imagination, which decks the object of our desires, is lost in its fruition. Excepting the Supreme Being, who is self-existent, there is nothing beautiful but what is ideal. But he returns to his unintelligible paradoxes again, while he thus addresses Sophia. Quote, Emilius, in becoming your husband, is become your master, and claims your obedience. Such is the order of nature. When a man is married, however, to such a wife as Sophia, it is proper he should be directed by her. This is also agreeable to the order of nature. It is, therefore, to give you as much authority over his heart, as his sex gives him over your person, that I have made you the arbiter of his pleasures. It may cost you, perhaps, some disagreeable self-denial. But you will be certain of maintaining your empire over him, if you can preserve it over yourself. What I have already observed also shows me that this difficult attempt does not surpass your courage. Would you have your husband constantly at your feet? Keep him at some distance from your person. You will long maintain the authority of love, if you know but how to render your favours rare and valuable. It is thus you may employ even the arts of coquetry in the service of virtue, and those of love in that of reason. I shall close my extracts with a just description of a comfortable couple. Quote, and yet you must not imagine that even such management will always suffice. Whatever precaution be taken, enjoyment will by degrees take off the edge of passion. But when love hath lasted as long as possible, a pleasing habitude supplies its place, and the attachment of a mutual confidence succeeds to the transports of passion. Children often form a more agreeable and permanent connection between married people than even love itself. When you cease to be the mistress of Amelius, you will continue to be his wife and friend. You will be the mother of his children. End quote. Rousseau's Amelius. Children, he truly observes, form a much more permanent connection between married people than love. Beauty, he declares, will not be valued, or even seen, after a couple have lived six months together. Artificial graces and coquetry will likewise pall on the senses. Why then does he say that a girl should be educated for her husband, with the same care as for an eastern harem? I now appeal from the reveries of fancy and refined licentiousness to the good sense of mankind, whether, if the object of education be to prepare women to become chaste wives and sensible mothers, the method so plausibly recommended in the foregoing sketch, be the best one calculated to produce those ends. Will it be allowed that the surest way to make a wife chaste is to teach her to practice the wanton arts of a mistress, termed virtuous coquetry by the sensualist who can no longer relish the artless charms of sincerity, 
or taste the pleasure arising from a tender intimacy when confidence is unchecked by suspicion and rendered interesting by sense the man who can be contented to live with a pretty useful companion without a mind has lost in voluptuous gratifications a taste for more refined employments he has never felt the calm satisfaction that refreshes the parched heart like the silent dew of heaven of being beloved by one who could understand him in the society of his wife he is still alone unless when the man is sunk in the brute the charm of life says a grave philosophical reasoner is sympathy nothing pleases us more than to observe in other men a fellow-feeling with all the emotions of our own breast But according to the tenor of reasoning by which women are kept from the tree of knowledge, the important years of youth, the usefulness of age, and the rational hopes of futurity, are all to be sacrificed, to render woman an object of desire for a short time. Besides, how could Rousseau expect them to be virtuous and constant, when reason is neither allowed to be the foundation of their virtue, nor truth the object of their enquiries? But all Rousseau's errors arose from sensibility, and sensibility to their charms women are very ready to forgive. When he should have reasoned, he became impassioned, and reflection inflamed his imagination instead of enlightening his understanding. Even his virtues also led him farther astray, for born with a warm constitution and lively fancy, nature carried him toward the other sex with such eager fondness that he soon became lascivious. Had he given way to these desires, the fire would have extinguished itself in a natural manner. But virtue, and a romantic kind of delicacy, made him practice self-denial. Yet when fear, delicacy, or virtue restrained him, he debauched his imagination, and reflecting on the sensations to which fancy gave force, he traced them in the most glowing colours, and sunk them deep into his soul. He then sought for solitude not to sleep with the man of nature, or calmly investigate the causes of things, under the shade where Sir Isaac Newton indulged contemplation, but merely to indulge his feelings. And so warmly has he planted what he forcibly felt, that, interesting the heart and inflaming the imagination of readers in proportion to the strength of their fancy, they imagine that their understanding is convinced when they only sympathize with a poetic writer, who skilfully exhibits the objects of sense, most voluptuously shadowed or gracefully veiled, and thus making us feel, whilst dreaming that we reason, erroneous conclusions are left in the mind. Why was Rousseau's life divided between ecstasy and misery? Can any other answer be given than this, that the effervescence of his imagination produced both? But had his fancy been allowed to cool, it is possible that he might have acquired more strength of mind. Still, if the purpose of life be to educate the intellectual part of man, all with respect to him was right. Yet had death not led to a nobler scene of action, it is probable that he would have enjoyed more equal happiness on earth, and have felt the calm sensations of the man of nature, instead of being prepared for another stage of existence by nourishing the passions which agitate the civilized man. But peace to his manes! I war not with his ashes, but his opinions. I war only with the sensibility that led him to degrade woman, 
by making her slave of love. Quote, Cursed vassalage, first idolized till love's hot fire be o'er, then slaves to those who courted us before. End quote. Dryden. The pernicious tendency of those books in which the writers insidiously degrade the sex whilst they are prostrate before their personal charms cannot be too often or too severely exposed. Let us, my dear contemporaries, arise above such narrow prejudices. If wisdom is desirable on its own account, if virtue, to deserve the name, must be founded on knowledge, let us endeavour to strengthen our minds by reflection, till our heads become a balance for our hearts. Let us not confine all our thoughts to the petty occurrences of the day, nor our knowledge to an acquaintance with our lovers' or husbands' hearts, but let the practice of every duty be subordinate to the grand one of improving our minds, and preparing our affections for a more exalted state. Beware, then, my friends, of suffering the heart to be moved by every trivial incident. The reed is shaken by a breeze, and annually dies, but the oak stands firm, and for ages braves the storm. Were we indeed only created to flutter our hour out and die? Why, let us then indulge sensibility, and laugh at the severity of reason. Yet, alas, even then we should want strength of body and mind, and life would be lost in feverish pleasures or wearisome languor. But the system of education which I earnestly wish to see exploded seems to presuppose what ought never to be taken for granted, that virtue shields us from the casualties of life, and that fortune, slipping off her bandage, will smile on a well-educated female, and bring in her hand an Emilius or a Telemachus. Whilst, on the contrary, the reward which virtue promises to her votaries is confined, it is clear, to their own bosoms, and often must they contend with the most vexatious worldly cares, and bear with the vices and humours of relations for whom they can never feel a friendship. There have been many women in the world who, instead of being supported by the reason and virtue of their fathers and brothers, have strengthened their own minds by struggling with their vices and follies, yet have never met with a hero, in the shape of a husband, who, paying the debt that mankind owed them, might chance to bring back their reason to its natural dependent state, and restore the usurped prerogative of rising above opinion to man. End of chapter 5, part 1